Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. I was, I was uh, amused by Ken's uh, deal earlier because that was the sermon he preached, right? Couldn't even remember the question that he spent time studying and preaching. But guess what? That's like all of us, is it not? Like, um, how many of you remember what happened three weeks ago? Probably not too much about three weeks ago, unless it was a huge event. It's just the kind of the way we are, right, in our fast-paced society. So um, I just felt like, hey, you know what? I'm not the only one who doesn't remember even what I spoke about three weeks ago sometimes, right? Because there's a lot of things that are going across our lives. Again, we are finishing up these questions Jesus asked. And um, really just to kind of speed through the, uh, the things we've been talking about, good questions inform, great, great questions transform. Jesus was the master of this. And he teaches us that in thinking about and asking great questions, it begins to open up our minds and our hearts to what we need to see about life and understand about life. And Jesus practiced this a lot. He asked a lot of questions. And the intent of, this, of his questions was basically this. When Jesus asks a question, he is ready to change your life. Um, he's asking a question not just to um, gain information. He is asking a question to really take you down a journey in your heart and mind about what do you need to see and know about this life in relation to who he is and what he does. And so we've looked at, has no one condemned you? And do you believe? And do you want to get well? Um, there's a lot of questions I could have chose, but those three, those three resonated with me and, and today's also um, in helping us understand the grace and mercy of who God is and understanding how that sets us free. And, and, and that's why when Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, um, we get that because Jesus answered that question and shows us what he's about. When he asks, do you believe, he's really inviting us into a trusting relationship with him. Belief is not just, did you check all the boxes and do you think the right things and do you have the right belief box. It's really, do you believe when Jesus asks us that, he's inviting us into this trusting relationship with him where I am absolutely at a point where I believe so much in you, Jesus. I'm willing to follow you completely, unreservedly with my whole life. I believe. I believe. And that means that I have to follow. Do you want to get well? Jesus asks that question and helping us kind of drill down beyond the surface to the heart of, of the fact, the heart of the matter is, is that Jesus' healing power and ability is something that can absolutely transform our lives. And so often we, uh, in our human nature, tend to shrink back at times from the bold and unfamiliar and uncomfortable healing that Jesus will provide for us because it is 
different from the lives that we've normally lived. Um, we, we get so used to the brokenness and the mediocrity of this world that uh, we would actually sometimes be more comfortable in the familiar and not experience freedom because it is a bold new world, so to speak. And yet Jesus is always inviting us, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And he invites us to a wholeness that breaks us free from the things that would bind us so often. Today, I want, I want to look at the question um, that Jesus asked that's from a story that is from all four Gospels, all right? It's the only, only story, only miracle recorded in all, well, it's not the resurrection is, but from his, from his ministry life, this is the only story that's recorded in all four Gospels. And that's significant because it's something about this story that all four writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted us to see over and over and over and over again. Wanted to make sure that God's people, as they read God's word, would grab a hold of. It was such a significant event and a significant revealing of something about Jesus that we need to, grab, we need to see and it's this question that we're going to look at. How many loaves do you have? <laughs> it's kind of a weird question, isn't it? <laughs> of all the questions Jesus asked, um, how many loaves do you have is probably not the one that comes to your mind first, right? Um, who do you say that I am? He asked that question, right? Well, I, I can get, you're going to talk about that. But how many loaves do you have? Um, what, what, what are we doing here, Chip? I was thinking uh, about this, and uh, inevitably I tend to um, uh, be the guy who leaves work and stops by the grocery store for certain things, and, and um, any other guys like that. And, um, and then inevitably I'm already out in the parking lot, and I've already unlocked the car. I'm getting ready to jump in, and I get that ding. That text message, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Hey, can you also grab, gotta be honest, my level of frustration starts to mount there. I've just navigated through the store, which I don't know very well. I've looked at three aisles to find one thing, and I went through the cashier, you know, and it's just like stressful to me. And then I've got to go walk right back into all that mess and for one item, right? But um, I've been thinking about this week, I, you know, I was buying bread. And um, uh, I always gravitate toward Aunt Millie's honey wheat. Anybody else do Aunt Millie's honey wheat? Hey, Greg does it. Yeah, that's my choice, man. And then the rest of the family just has to go with what I want. Cause, um, but Aunt Millie's honey wheat, so don't take that when you're in Walmart if it's the last one because I might be coming through. No teasing but um how many loaves do you have but I think what is being communicated in this story is something really powerful for us to grab a hold of in 2018 um but I want to introduce a couple videos I've been thinking about this this week and um you'll see my point after a while but um uh anybody like the movie meet the parents all right if you're familiar with that, this is a scene from uh, uh, Greg meeting his, uh, his girlfriend's parents and sitting down for a meal.
Obviously, no clue, right? Does not pray very often at the table, thinking about God's provision, right? That's a perspective. There's also this perspective, or perspective uh, the old Western movie Shenandoah. Some of you have probably never heard of this, but Jimmy Stewart um, prays at the dinner table this prayer. that's another perspective, right? We thank you anyway. We did it all, but we thank you anyway. And so with those in mind, um, I want to share with you again a familiar story uh, that all of you are are probably um, conscious of. But let's walk through it and just think about what it means. Mark chapter 6, I chose Mark and, and also a little bit of John. All of them give a little bit, or John gives a little bit of different perspective on this story. The context is Jesus has sent them out to do their own ministry work. They've come back. Jesus has just received the news that his, you know, his cousin, John the Baptist, his friend, um, the forerunner to his gospel, has been beheaded. And so not only are they all weary and tired, but they're also grieving And they're really wanting to get away. And Jesus said, come, let's get away and rest a while. And But as they did that, people uh, knew where they were and, and followed them. And in fact, when they got away to a solitary place, it says that the multitudes followed them out to this solitary place. And we read in Mark chapter 6 and verse 31, Then, because so many people were coming and going that he did not have and have a chance to eat. He said to them, let us go to a place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot ahead of them from all the towns and got there. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. And so his disciples came to him and says, this is a remote place. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countrysides and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. You know, I've thought about this this week, and, and um, it, it's like they're saying, hey, send them down to the, uh, the Shell or the McDonald's, right? Or in Israel, it would have been the McDavid's, right? We got to do something about this. We're conscious of the fact that they've been around so long, and they're in a remote place. And Jesus challenges them and says, he looks at them and says, no. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Uh, Basically, the language here is, it would have been about 200 days wages just to feed 
that crew that day for one meal. We know that it's recorded in all these places that there was about 5,000 men. And, and in the account it says that there were also women and children. And so you're talking a crowd of 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people. And they're like, listen, we're going to blow three, 200 days worth of salary just on this one meal. Um, it's inc- they're incredulous by Jesus' challenge. John, though, would record it this way, a little different. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, Philip was from this area, so he would have known the local establishments, right? And he asked this only to test them. And this is the key phrase, I think, in this whole story. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. You feed them. Philip, where are you going to go? Well, nowhere. Well, you feed them. And he already knew what he was going to pull off here. And so the story says that he sent them out and said, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So the disciples started to move out into the crowd, right? You're very familiar with this story. I don't want to overdo this. Basically, they came back and they said, we have five, five loaves and two fish. And then Jesus directed them, all the people, to sit down in groups on the grass. And so they sat down in hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave to them, gave them to his disciples to distribute them to the people. There's so many rich, there's so much rich imagery here. Um, Even in the words, he broke and gave thanks. And um, later on, just a few moments later, he's going to explain that he himself is the bread of life. And we realize that he was broken. And anyway, so there's so much rich imagery. But for the sake of this story, he gave them, he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten that day was 5,000. Now here's the point. Jesus creates an impossible situation to reveal his adequacy and his provision. In this familiar story that we all are, are, we know by heart, we recognize that Jesus pushes them instead of saying, yeah, 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 send them out. They can, they can find something or they'll go home. And it would have been very logical. It's what, what we would have done probably, right? Yeah, okay, they're hungry, let them go. But Jesus actually creates uh, what becomes an impossible situation. Five loaves and two fish could not hardly even begin to feed a couple people, let alone 10, 15, 20,000. And in this miracle, he is creating an impossible situation to point to something, and that is to reveal his adequacy and his provision. Now, I would remind you that Jesus primarily did signs and wonders for primarily to point to 
are to confirm the deity, his deity, right? He is doing these things primarily so that people might know that he is the son of God. That's why he did signs and wonders primarily. Um, but we see that so often in the miracles that he would perform, one, hey, you need to take note of who I am. I can suspend the natural world and do supernatural things because I am the creator, the sustainer of this whole earth. I am God himself. I am the Messiah. He primarily did that to draw attention to who he was. But often his miracles always corresponded to what his mission was. He did miracles to point to him, but also to show who he was to get a more clear picture of what God is like and who he is. And I would say that this miracle hints at an all too familiar theme with God. Yes, I'm Jesus, I can do this, the impossible, the incredible. You need to see that about me. You need to know who I am. But when I do this, I'm also, I'm also doing what God has always done with his people. I am consistent with the character and the nature of my father and how he provides for his people. And you need to grab a hold of what I am capable of doing. I am adequate in this particular area of life. I want us to go back to, to kind of get a little better understanding of this. If he creates an impossible situation to once again to reveal to us he's adequate and he is a provider, he has all the provision we need, I want us to kind of backtrack down through the pages of Scripture and think about how this has always been who God is with his people. I want, you, I want to take us back to ancient Egypt. Egypt is the breadbasket of the ancient world, right? And Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, is the ruler of the world. And we're introduced to him in the story of Joseph and the ruler of the world, the one who is in control of that place and that kingdom and that world has a dream. It's really a nightmare to him. And really what it is, it's a dream of scarcity. It's a dream of scarcity. I am going to lose what I have. I am not going to have a enough. I am going to um, be without. That becomes a nightmare to him. It's a dream that is in essence a dream of scarcity. And you remember how the story goes, that Joseph interprets the dream. But if you were to continue reading, we stop with Joseph becoming the ruler of Egypt. We see that a progression happens after he interprets this dream. And he causes Egypt to store up seven years worth of, of uh, grain and provision. We read that the people, when the famine hit began to go to Egypt because they, they didn't have crops and they went to the place that had, had, that had provision. And we recognize that, first of all, the first time they would come, they would pay for their food. 
But as the story continues to go, the famine continues to last, that they ran out of money. And so they ended up coming back and saying, we're still hungry, we're gonna starve. And this was Egyptian people, and this was also Joseph's people, the Jewish people, the people of God. And so inevitably what they had to do was, we don't have any money, we will give you our land as collateral. And so they would, give, they would sign over their properties that now they could have food based on the collateral they gave. But as the famine continued, they ran out of land to give. And ultimately they came and said, listen, we don't have anything. We have no money. We have no collateral. We are going to starve. And we are just going to have to offer ourselves up as slaves to you. We will work for our, um, we'll give up our freedom just so that we can eat. And what happened in that society is it became a social situation that deteriorated into a culture dominated by anxiety. Um, And we read as the story progresses, the children of Israel become slaves to Egypt. And Pharaoh, who lives in this scarcity principle, always worried about, do I have enough? Or do I need more? Or I'm going to lose? Is propelled, is fueled by anxiety and fear. And that creates in him this attitude of, uh, of production that is um, unparalleled. And we read that literally uh, he created for the slaves of that country, the Jewish people, unbearable labor conditions and unrealistic production schedules. It's all driven by this anxiety of we might go without, we might fall behind, we might not have enough. And in that, we read in that story that the taskmasters, the slave owners, the taskmasters of Egypt become abusive, but it's all motivated by fear and anxiety. It's what we would call, or Brueggemann would call, the principle of scarcity. And we read in that story that the people of God who are so oppressed by this, this Pharaoh who has to stay on top, who has to stay ahead, who has to have enough, that they're so, they're so beat down, they're so burdened down that they cry out to God. And you remember the story is that God hears their cry and he calls Moses out of the wilderness and you remember how that story goes Moses goes back and and he approaches Pharaoh Pharaoh is resistant even through one two three six seven eight nine plagues and finally the tenth plague he relents and lets go and you remember the exodus of the of God's people out of Egypt You remember that Pharaoh, again, what is his thought pattern? Oh, great. I'm not going to be able to keep up with what I need. I need these slave peoples for production, for me to continue to hang on to what I have. 
And so he runs after them and his army. And you remember the story of the Red Sea and how God provides for the children of Israel in his protection and fights for them in essence as they walk across and are led to safety as Pharaoh arrogantly follows across and is uh, killed in the waves of the Red Sea. And these people of God now find themselves in a bold new place. They're in the wilderness. It's unfamiliar and it's risky. And guess what happens to them? It's what happens to us. We've been so conditioned to the systems of this world that as they get out in this unfamiliar, uncomfortable new place, they begin to worry and have anxiety about how are we going to provide? We're in the wilderness. There's millions of us now. What are we going to do? And things seem to begin to run thin. And in fact, we would read in Exodus that they begin to actually call out for the old life. In fact, they would rather be exploited by Pharaoh and be comfortable then be out here. Now I would remind you that out there is exactly where God wanted them to be. It was the road to their freedom. But the road to freedom often is unfamiliar and risky. And we would read that they begin to grumble and complain. And sure enough, what does God do? He's so gracious. He never planned on sending them out in the wilderness to starve to death. He wasn't going to create plagues and this exodus experience and this Red Sea phenomenon just to send them out and for them to just die in the wilderness from starvation. And so we have this conversation in Exodus 16 of, of Moses coming to the Lord and saying, God, these people are they're, they're, they're complaining. They don't know where our next meal's coming from. Um, I'm a little concerned about this. And, and the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down, from, down bread from heaven for you. And he tells him what he's gonna do. And we pick up Exodus chapter 16 and, and we see that that first time that he rains down this bread from heaven we see that when the Israelites saw it, they said to each another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is together as much as they need. Take an omer for each person and put it in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they had measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept back. See, they were conditioned by this scarcity principle. They kept their, the fear and anxiety that they had developed and the kingdom of this world had taught them, you need to keep hanging on. And God was introducing them to a whole new way of living. And he said, you know what? I don't want you to gather more than just this day. Just gather enough for this day. Don't hold any back till the next morning. You know, I need to, okay, let's eat a little bit, um, but let's save some for breakfast. He said, don't do that. Eat it all. 
However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept it until morning. But you know what God caused to happen to it? It became full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord had commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they kept it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. And this is what God did for them. In fact, this was so significant that God commanded Moses to take some and put it in a jar and put it in the Ark of the Covenant, something that they always remembered. And you know how long this happened? 40 years. 40 years every day God did this. I read somewhere some guy, some, you know, uh, accountant or something like that, trying to figure out the food costs for this many people. He estimated that it was 12 million pounds of food a day, a day, that God provided for his children based on what an omer was and, and all that. 12 million pounds of food a day. You see, God was moving them away from the kingdom, the systems, the thought patterns of this world of scarcity. And he was teaching them as God's people that he was a God who gave them in abundance. He would always provide for them. In fact, he said, don't save this. I will give you the next day's uh, food. What is he trying to do with them? He's trying to teach them that they can learn to trust and depend on him. He's weaning them off of scarcity type mentality. It's a scarcity versus abundance type mindset. Scarcity creates anxiety. It's always um, the kingdoms of this world that are motivated by scarcity. It's a world of, do I have enough? Do I need to do more? It's a world, the world is plagued by fears and anxieties. But God is teaching him that his kingdom is one of abundance. Don't worry about having enough. Don't live plagued by thoughts of, do I need more? It is there day by day. In fact, you can take a day off and there will still be enough. You would see this theme stretched even further for the people of God when he institutes a Sabbath year and then a year of Jubilee. And what is he doing? He is breaking the cycles of being consumed, of getting ahead and greed. He is teaching them to live lives to do what they are supposed to do. Now some of you, I can almost see in your minds like it's coming out your eyes right now. It's blinking red lights, right? God has always instructed his people to work hard. Work hard. 
I would challenge you, you should be the best employees wherever you work. Because that's always been the ethic of the people of God, to work hard. God has consistently talked in his word about being good stewards of what we have. And he's always actually told us to be good enough stewards that we save. Okay? So can some of the blinking red lights go off here? What he is trying to teach them in a very radical way then, because they were so, so ingrained with the scarcity principle of the kingdoms of this world of Egypt, is what he's always trying to teach us today. In fact, this is what he promised in Leviticus after he's talked about the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee to his people. And we look at Israel because that's how God worked with his people. And as the people of God now in the new covenant, there are continued, consistent themes about who God is, right? And so if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and great harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and you will live in safety in your land. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry. Oh, that was the, I just went into a whole new verse, sorry. You see what he's trying to teach them? is work hard, be smart, be stewards, but don't live with the weight of it's on you. Because as God's children, we come to a place where we live confident and assured that God will provide. Amen? Amen. This isn't what You turn on the TV, you're told through commercial after commercial after commercial. In fact, it's David who said these words, I have never seen the righteous forsaking or their people begging for bread. God's people are taken care of. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would say these words, therefore I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Amen. (laughs) So you're like, what? (laughs) What? No way. And the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory, his splendor, was dressed like one of these. Solomon is like Case exhibit A in the Old Testament for scarcity type mentality. I mean, the guy was just consumed with getting ahead and having more, and he was consumed by it. 
And God turns that completely on its head when he talks about Solomon. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He's already encouraged them a little bit earlier in that sermon that when you pray, pray, give us today our daily bread. And I would say that how many loaves do you have is Jesus' way of once again reminding his people that he is a God who always, always is a source of provision. In fact, Jesus asked this question to cause us to rest in his provision. Here's the application for me. The Bible has always expected us to work hard and be good stewards. I mean, it says things in the New Testament, if you don't work, uh, you're, you're an awful person. But here's the caveat. We are people who do not worry about having enough. We trust that he will always provide for us. He calls us to be people who in the midst of the world that's built on scarcity, I think about our own country, we spend so many millions of dollars every year. We send people to countries to do spy programs, right? And to, to, uh, because we are, we are so uh, overwhelmed by this idea of making sure that you know, we're ahead of a threat or this or that. consumed consumed with protecting and making sure that we just we're just caught up in it the fear and anxiety that exists in our world and we're called to be people that are in the midst of that are countercultural to that we live day by day not worrying This kind of lifestyle breaks the cycles of anxiety and fear. I will be judicious. I will save. But I do so with a mindset that God will always take care of me. I will not be overcome with the future and the what ifs. I will not allow these things to cause my life to become unbalanced and fretful. And you know what is a counter, uh, uh, another product of this? That when I live confident in God's provision, it frees me up to be open-handed and generous because I'm confident of the Lord's provision for me. Oh God, I can help you in this world through my resources. Well, I, well, maybe I'll need that when I'm 67. 
don't know if I can give that right now because I might need it. You might be dead when you're 63. Okay? And if God is prompting you, hey, I want you to give that. Living with this kind of heart, this mentality frees me up to realize, God, you're asking me to do this. You're going to provide for me always, so I don't need to hang on. It creates an open-handed generosity because I'm resting in his provision. Please don't take out of here what I didn't say. I didn't tell you to empty your retirement account out. But I did tell you to stop worrying about your retirement account. Stop. Put into it. Keep doing what's judicious and smart. But stop worrying about it. God's people don't worry about God's provision. Amen? How many loaves do you have? (laughs) That question, he intentionally created this whole thing. Yeah, you need to see how powerful I am, how adequate I am, that I'm the son of God and I can create all this food. But really what I want you to also be reminded of is I'm the God who always provides. Would you rest in my provision? And so this morning as we go, I just want you to read with me this verse that Paul gave us as he was dealing with certain needs in his own life, physical needs. Paul lived in wealth and he lived in, um, uh, what's the word? It's not poorness. (laughs) Poverty, yeah. Poorness. (laughs) He lived in poorness. He lived in all of it. And he said, I learned to be content because he realized this as he finished up that epistle in Philippians. My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of in glory in Christ Jesus. Can you read that with me this morning? My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Let's read it again. I want it to sink in. My God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. We don't live worrying, filled with anxiety, buying into a scarcity type mentality. We live serving, living in the hands of an abundant God. Most of you have experienced this because you've honored God and you followed his word and you've recognized that when you have, you have realized that God who gives and you just give freely yourself and you trust in him, what has he done for you? He's blessed you even in this life in immeasurable ways so often. There's a lot of scriptures I could talk about with that. Don't worry. How many loaves do you have? Ask yourself that question. Next time you have a bill or you start to sit down and think, okay, okay, so I, I'm gonna retire at 65 and um, man, everybody's living till they're 85 now and I gotta have 20 years and hey, that's reality. 
But don't start all of a sudden becoming just overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. Plan out to the best of your ability and live thinking, how many loaves do you have? God will provide. Lord, this is a, a new thing to think about often for some of us. And Lord, there's such a balance here. But at the end of the day, you do expect your people not to wring their hands and walk around overwhelmed by fear and anxiety about the future. Do what's smart. Do what you're capable of. Be good stewards. And don't worry. Don't worry. And Lord, we ask that this would be our mindset for all of us, knowing that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Go with us, I pray, this week and all that we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.